pray together. Father, we ask you now that you would be with us, your people. Allow the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts that this might be more than just words coming out of my mouth into the people's ears, but that these might be life-changing and life-giving words. We pray that you would graciously save those in this room who do not yet know you. And we pray that you would graciously sanctify those in this room who do. That you would, through the preached word, make us more like your son. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to the book of 2 Samuel. After almost 14 months, uh, we finally, finally finished the book of 1 Samuel last time. And there was a part of me that was uh, tempted to turn our attention to an entirely different uh, section of the Bible, uh, maybe a book of the New Testament. But consider where we are, right, like in the storyline. Chapter 31, uh, King Saul has just died. Uh, The Israelites have just suffered uh, a massive defeat at the hand of the Philistines. Uh, David is just about to become the next king of Israel. Uh, And so if we stopped here, it's basically like turning the TV off uh, in uh, the middle of an intense game uh, in the fourth quarter, game seven of the finals, and just turning the TV off. Or or it's like watching the the first three quarters uh, of a really good movie, uh, but never finishing it. We need some some resolution here, right? Right. And so uh, I could just tell you to uh, read the beginning of 2 Samuel, but, you know, it's more fun for us to go through it together, and so we will. Uh, the end of the book of 1 Samuel, it's just a, a really arbitrary point to stop a sermon series because it literally cuts uh, one narrative unit right in the middle. Like 2 Samuel chapter 1 is the second half of a story that really begins in 1 Samuel chapter 31. You'll remember that First and Second Samuel uh, in the Jewish scriptures were originally one book, uh, only in the Septuagint were they divided into two, kind of arbitrarily into halves. Uh, and by the way, if you've ever wondered, that's why the book of Second Samuel is named after a character that doesn't even appear in the book. Right? Samuel's been dead since First Samuel 25, uh, but again, it's basically the second half of what was once one book that was named after its first main character, Second Samuel. Uh, so our plan, Lord willing, uh, as, at least right now, uh, is to go through maybe the first seven uh, chapters or so of Second Samuel that, that we might have some resolution here before we go on to uh, study something else. Now maybe you weren't here for much of the First Samuel series. Uh, maybe you joined us somewhere kind of in the middle Uh, Let me get everybody up to speed by just kind of quickly recapping what happened in that book. Uh, Since, of course, 1 Samuel sets up everything that we're going to be studying in the first seven chapters of 2 Samuel. Uh, 1 Samuel basically begins with the Israelites in a really bad place. Uh, The high priests, uh, they're supposed to be leading the nation spiritually. Uh, Eli, his sons Hophni and Phinehas, uh, they're corrupt. And it wasn't just them. Uh, Seemingly everyone in the nation was doing what was right in their own eyes. Uh, Just a complete disregard for God and his word. And this culminates in in the disastrous battle of Aphek, chapter 4. Israel suffers a a crushing defeat to the Philistines. Uh, Eli and his sons, they all die on that same day. And worst of all, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the physical manifestation of God's presence among the Israelites... That's taken away, basically, as a war trophy. Uh, And everybody understood what had just happened. Uh, The glory had departed from Israel. Uh, Meanwhile, a a young man named Samuel comes onto the scene, and and he's established quickly as a a prophet of the Lord. And things begin to change. Israel gets the ark back. Samuel intercedes for the people. He leads them in, in a national repentance Uh, God then grants them victory over the Philistines. And things kind of seem to be looking up under Samuel's leadership as judge and prophet of the nation. But the people aren't satisfied with the setup, especially when it turns out that Samuel's sons uh, are corrupt and and therefore won't be able to follow after him. 
And so they demand a king. Give us a king. We want to be like all the other nations. Essentially, this was a rejection of God as their king, but God gives them what they want in King Saul, the first king of Israel. And Saul starts off with so much promise. His first major act, you'll remember, is to defeat Nahash and the Ammonites. But then things begin to unravel. Chapter 13, and then again in chapter 15, Saul is twice disobedient to God's command. He goes directly against God's word. And because of his rejection of God, God declares that he has rejected Saul from being king. He has rejected Saul's dynasty. Then in chapter 16, we meet a young man named David. He's probably just a teenager at that point. Uh, He's anointed to be the next king of Israel. But as David rises in power and rises in influence by succeeding in basically everything that he does, most famously his victory over Goliath, well, this leads to jealousy and hatred on Saul's part. And basically from chapter 18 onwards, all the way until Saul's death at the end of the book, uh, David is on the run from Saul because Saul is desperately trying to kill him. But because God is with David... Because David has been anointed by God to be the next king, Saul can't lay a finger on David. Uh, But in running from Saul, David, now we're going to chapter 27, basically he decides that he can't take it anymore. I can't stay in Israel. I need to get out of here. I need to go to the land of the Philistines. And so he lives there in enemy lands for about 16 months. And in that time, The Philistines are about to go to war against the Israelites. Well, some of the Philistines, like King Achish, uh, they expect David to go and fight with them against the Israelites. But ultimately, David is sent back because some of the Philistines sense that there's just too much risk that he's going to defect in the middle of the battle. And so David is sent home. And once David is sent home, the rest of the Philistines go up and battle the Israelites at the Valley of Jezreel. And the Philistines absolutely dominate that battle. The Israelites flee, they're overtaken, and in that battle, King Saul and his sons are dead. Now basically at the exact same time as the Battle of Gilboa is going on, in which the Philistines kill Saul and Jonathan, many miles south, David and his men, they're going home back to Ziklag, and they find the place is completely trashed and destroyed, and burned with fire, and everything has been taken. Well, after David strengthens himself in God, he goes, he pursues the Amalekites, and God grants him this great victory in which he is able to retrieve every single person and every single thing that was taken. And so up in Mount Gilboa, you've got Saul and Jonathan killed. Uh, The Philistines are going to make a public display of their deaths. And then many miles south in the city of Ziklag, you've got David. He's relieved. He's rejoicing because he's been able to retrieve everything that was taken by the Amalekites. Now, the city's still burned down. So uh, presumably they're beginning to uh, rebuild or or maybe salvage what's left. And that's where we pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 1. And so if you haven't yet, please turn there in your Bibles. We're going to try to get through the entire chapter uh, this morning. And just taking a quick glance at the formatting of the text in your Bibles, you'll see that this chapter basically has two major sections to it. You've got this uh, narrative part in the beginning of the chapter, and then you've got this poetry part that's kind of indented uh, in our copies of the Scriptures. And so that's basically how we're going to divide the text uh, this morning. We're going to look at the lie— in verses 1 through 16, and then we're going to look at the lament in verses 17 through 27. So we'll start with point number one, uh, the lie. Look at verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. Let me pause right there and remind you that one of the primary reasons, right, there's many things that Saul did wrong, but one of the primary reasons why Saul was rejected as king is because he did not obey God's command to completely destroy the Amalekites, right, back in chapter 15. Like when dead Samuel appears to Saul, and and he tells Saul that, hey, tomorrow you're going to die in the battle of Gilboa, the reason he gives is, quote, Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. 
And so verse 1 then gives us a really interesting contrast. Saul, he didn't do what he was supposed to do in striking down the Amalekites, and so he is rejected, so he is put to death. But what's David doing in the meantime? Striking down the Amalekites. Right? You see the contrast between Saul and David. Verse 2, on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Obviously, this is before the, the days of the internet and Twitter and live streaming and whatever. Like nowadays, we can know about something that happened on the other side of the globe, uh, basically the second that it happens. But here's David. Uh, he's in Ziklag. He's got no idea about what happened in the battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. Now, he knows that there is a battle. Because remember, he was almost called to go and fight on the Philistine side. He knows that there is a battle, but he has no idea about the outcome. But he sees this young man. His clothes are torn. There's dirt on his head. Uh, Those are outward signs uh, of mourning. And then he hears him say that he escaped from the camp of Israel. And now David's starting to sense uh, that things didn't go very well for the Israelites. Last time, if you were here two weeks ago when we were in chapter 31, you'll remember I brought up the parallels between uh, this battle and the battle of Aphek from uh, the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel. Well, doesn't this guy who's delivering the news kind of remind you of the guy from the battle of Aphek who ran to tell Eli about what happened? Because listen to how that guy's described. Uh, this is 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. That's the exact same way that our guy is described. And our guy brings similarly bad news. And not only has Israel been defeated, but there's also some very significant casualties as well. Verse 4, David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And you can kind of sense the desperation in his voice, right? Tell me what happened. And the young man answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. And so not only did the Israelites get thoroughly defeated, but now David finds out that Saul, King Saul, and his son Jonathan are dead. But the news is, it's, it's so shocking, it's so difficult, that David wants confirmation. Are you sure? Or is this just a rumor? Like Mark Twain once said, reports of my death are greatly exaggerated. Right? David wants proof. Verse 5, David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who, said to him, the young man who told him said, By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on a spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Now, if you're familiar with 1 Samuel 31, you're like, wait a minute. The description of what happened here is completely different from what chapter 31 said. Right? Because chapter 31 told us that Saul was shot by Philistine archers, and as he's dying, he asks his armor bearer to kill him. But the armor bearer feared uh, doing anything like that to the king. And so instead, Saul falls upon his own sword and kills himself. So you say, well, what, what's going on here? Right? Does the Bible contradict itself? Well, no, the Bible doesn't contain any contradictions. And this certainly isn't a contradiction by any means. I think it's actually pretty clear that what's going on here is that the Amalekite is lying. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, consider the testimony of the scriptures. The narrative in 1 Samuel 31, like, it leaves absolutely no room for the Amalekite story to be true. 
Because look at what verses 5 and 6 say in chapter 31. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. And furthermore, 1 Chronicles chapter 10 uh, contains basically the same exact information as 1 Samuel 31. And in neither chapter is there any mention of any Amalekite doing anything. Uh, Both chapters make it very clear that Saul took his own life. So first, there's the, the clear testimony of the scriptures. And if you have to choose between believing the biblical narrators and believing an Amalekite's testimony, right, the choice is pretty obvious. But second, even apart from the testimony of 1 Samuel 31 and 1 Chronicles 10, the Amalekite story, it's got some major holes in it. Something is rotten in the state of Denmark. Look again at verse 6. By chance, I happened to be on Mount Goboa, and there was Saul leaning on a spear. Well, you like walking your dog one day, and you know, by chance, you just happen to find yourself right smack in the middle of this major war. One time I was down by City Hall and just kind of walking down the street, and I think they were filming like, a, like an episode of Law and Order or, or something like that. Uh, I've actually never seen an episode of Law and Order, but those of you who watch the reruns, right, keep your eyes out because maybe I'm there in, in the background of one of the scenes. By chance, I happened to walk by. You happen to walk by like yard sales and street fairs and TV shows being filmed, a major battle, like the Battle of Gilboa, arrows flying left and right, that's not exactly the kind of thing that you kind of randomly stumble upon. And furthermore, remember the whole reason that Saul asks his armor bearer to kill him and then takes his own life is so that he does not die a disgraceful death at the hand of an uncircumcised, at the hand of an enemy of God. Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. And so why would we believe that Saul would ask, of all people, an Amalekite, the arch enemies of God's people? Like, that might be worse than being a Philistine. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Why would King Saul beg an Amalekite to take his life? And so upon closer examination, right, this story has holes left and right. And so you've got the testimony of the scriptures. You've got the holes in his story. And third, if you've ever watched like any mystery shows, you know the importance of this. The Amalekite has motive. He's not just lying for the sake of lying. He's got a very clear motive. In all likelihood, what happened here is that after Saul died, after he killed himself. But before the Philistines could get to the body, uh, the Amalekite, who's probably just looting and, and scavenging the battlefield, he comes across Saul's dead body first. He steals the crown. He steals the armband. Right? Looting, it's, it's kind of a first-come, first-serve thing. And so he thinks to himself, well, I could sell these on eBay, but I have a better idea, or something that's going to give me more lasting benefits the Amalekite knows that Saul has been trying to kill David. He know, he's been living amongst the Israelites. He knows that Saul's death means that David is going to become king. And so he brings the news of Saul's death to David. I bring you good tidings of great joy. And he brings the crown and he brings the band as proof that Saul is dead, thinking that David is going to reward him in return. Maybe I can get a prominent officer job in his government. Like, it's no accident that this Amalekite does not go to Gibeah, where the Israelite government is set up, but he goes all the way past that to the small town of Ziklag outside of Israel so that he might find David. But, and this is where his lie comes in, the Amalekite can't just go up to David and be like, Hey, so I like to loot battlefields and desecrate dead bodies, and here's what I found. I found Saul's crown, and I found Saul's armband because he's dead. No, he's got to come up with a story. Well, what better story than if he himself was the hero? If he was the one 
who struck the final blow to David's archenemy. But now look at verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Now imagine you're the Amalekite. You're expecting David to rejoice uh, that his enemy was dead. Uh, You're expecting to be rewarded. You're expecting to be like eating this lavish feast to celebrate the fact that the path to the throne was so clear now for David. And instead they're weeping. And they're crying. And they're fasting. And they're tearing their clothes. You're like, all right, well, not being received exactly how I thought. Like, at best, this is incredibly awkward. At worst, you're kind of terrified about what's going to happen here. But the Amalekite can kind of hold on to hope, right? Maybe David's just doing this because he's supposed to. A public mourning, it's like a cultural thing. And so maybe David's just going to honor Saul by, you know, mourning like this so that everybody will know that he at least put on a show of being sad when Saul died. Kind of like Scar, right? He pretends that he's upset that Mufasa is dead. But then once all that's over, well, David's going to reward me in private. Uh, David's going to come up to me in private and thank me uh, for bringing him the crown. and, And at least he'll let me go. Well, not quite. Verse 13, David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. David said to him, your blood be on your head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now remember, we know exactly what happened on Mount Gilboa uh, when Saul died. Because we read chapter 31. But David, on the other hand, he only knows what the Amalekite has just told him. But that's all that he needs to know in order to rightly put the Amalekite to death here. Because his own words have condemned him. He said himself that he has killed the king of Israel. That's all David needs to hear. Your own mouth has testified against you. Remember that Israel understood their king to be God's anointed. And so to harm the king wasn't just to go against an authority figure, although that would be bad enough. It was to go against God's chosen instrument to lead his people. Remember how Samuel introduced Saul to the people all the way back in chapter 10 of 1 Samuel. He says, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? And so to go against him whom the Lord has chosen is basically to go against the Lord himself. It's an unthinkably evil act. David clearly understands this. And that's why we saw on two different occasions, right? Chapter 24 and chapter 26, he twice has the opportunity to kill Saul, but both times he passes and he makes clear the rationale. It's not because Saul's a great guy. It's not because Saul deserves mercy. It's not because Saul isn't actually really a threat. It's simply because Saul is the Lord's anointed. 1 Samuel 24, 6, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, talking about Saul, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. That's the only reason that I am not going to put my hands on him. And it wasn't just David, right? Saul's armor bearer also seems to clearly understand this concept as well. And so that's why rather than putting his hand on King Saul, he takes his own life. And I think that's why the, uh, David asks the Amalekite, uh, where do you come from, in verse 13. Like, he already knows that he's an Amalekite from verse 8. But now he confirms that he was an Amalekite who was living in Israel. I am the son of a sojourner. As, as in my father was an Amalekite who moved to live as a sojourner in Israel. And so this Amalekite would have been well aware of the respect and the honor due to the king. And so faced with a man who, in his own words claims to have killed the Lord's anointed, well, David fulfills his new role as judge of the nation by carrying out God's law on the Amalekite and putting him to death. Point number one, the lie. 
Now, whether David actually knew that the Amalekite was lying, or David actually believed him that he really did kill Saul, we can't be sure. Uh, Like, I think David knew that he was lying, but ultimately we don't know that. But here's the point. It didn't matter. It ultimately didn't matter because he's condemned to death either way. Uh, Whether he killed the king or he lied about killing the king, uh, whether the Amalekite fooled David with his lie or not, it didn't really matter at the end of the day. His judgment was sure. I think that's a pretty clear picture of our judgment as well. Like it doesn't really matter who in this life we fool. Because at the end of the day, all of us are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Hebrews chapter 4. Or consider Psalm 90 verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, the ones that nobody knows about, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Whether the Amalekite fooled David with his lies or not, it didn't really matter. And whether we fool our parents or our bosses or our friends or our family or our church, or our pastors, it really doesn't matter at the end of the day because God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, Romans 2.16. The story of the Amalekites serves us as a stern warning that ultimately uh, we're really not as clever as we think we are when it comes to our deception and our lies. Point number one, the lie. But let's also kind of zoom out here a little bit, and think about the big picture. David's been waiting for years and years as the anointed king in waiting, and now it seems like his time has finally come. King Saul is dead. And don't miss the irony, by the way. Saul lost his crown to David many years before because of what happened with the Amalekites. And now of all people, it's an Amalekite who literally takes the crown off of Saul's head and gives it to David. And so David's literally been handed the crown. This should be the best day of his life. And so maybe we're expecting him, now that all the the formalities of uh, public lamenting are done, and now that he's dealt justice to this Amalekite, now that he's uh, done all this so that the people of Israel will know that he had nothing to do with Saul's death, well, now maybe we're expecting him to, at least deep in his heart, rejoice. Saul's finally dead. And just like I said, vengeance belongs to the Lord. And look at that. Saul's evil has been repaid. I finally get to become king. This is great. But if that's how you thought David would respond, well, you really don't know David. Which brings us to point number two, the lament And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. And the rest of the chapter is basically one long poem of lament. And you can see as you kind of scan your eye through it, uh, the the central refrain that's repeated three times, how the mighty have fallen. You see it at the beginning, verse 19. You see it in the middle, verse 25. And then you see it at the very end in verse 27. That's the central theme. This is a lament over Saul and Jonathan, the mighty, and their tragic fall. Just a, a quick application here. I kept thinking about this as I was reading this passage over and over this week. This is kind of foreign to many of us, I think. Uh, Like this kind of open uh, grieving and this open lamenting. Uh, Maybe some of us are are a bit uncomfortable with with this. And and so we kind of keep our our griefs and our laments mainly to ourselves. We we don't really talk about it at at church and with brothers and sisters. We don't really make it uh, any part of our uh, public persona because we think, well, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to be happy. But I think David's lament here serves us as a a gentle reminder that it's okay for us as believers to lament. 
we can have this false idea that the Christian life is supposed to be this like happy-go-lucky, uh, cheery existence. Uh, believers aren't supposed to be sad. Uh, you're going to heaven. Why would you be sad? But remember that a full one-third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. All Scripture is profitable. And so they're not just in there for no reason. And the Apostle Paul... A man who understood true biblical joy more than anyone, how even he described himself as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Like it is possible for a believer to be truly joyful, to, to truly anchor their eternal joy in Christ and set their eyes on things above, and yet at the same time uh, truly and openly grieve and mourn and lament the things of this world. Like, we Christians are people who understand sin, the wages of sin, which is death, the damage that sin causes. We understand those things better than any unbeliever. And so, yes, uh, we Christians should be marked by this unique joy, a unique visible joy and expressible that comes from our knowing that our sins are forgiven and that our eternal home is secure. But we also... I think should be marked by a unique soberness, a unique sober-mindedness that will sometimes express itself in true lament and grief, knowing that this world is not how it ought to be, knowing the devastation uh, that sin causes, knowing the judgment of God that is coming for sin. So we need to acquaint ourselves with biblical expressions of that grief, like we see here in this lament, that we might also rightly express our own griefs in this life. Brothers and sisters, many of us, I think, are really good at rejoicing with those who rejoice. But remember, we are equally and similarly commanded to weep with those who weep. But I think many Christians have no idea how to biblically weep and lament and mourn. Let's look at the lament now. The really smart people who know a lot about Hebrew poetry, they will tell you that this is one of the most beautifully written poems in the entire Old Testament. Verse 19, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Tell it not in Gath. That actually became a common saying. We also find it in Micah chapter 1, verse 10. But its origin is right here in 2 Samuel 1. David could not stand the idea that the Philistines, represented here by the cities of Gath and Ashkelon, that the Philistines would rejoice over the deaths of Saul and Jonathan. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Our minds go back to when David slayed Goliath. What did the women of Israel do? They came out of the cities and they they sang, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And they gave glory to God. Well, that's exactly what the Philistine women would now do with Dagon. Now, David has no idea what we know from the end of uh, chapter 31, that the uh, Philistines had already made victory trophies out of Saul's armor and his head, and uh, they hung his body to the wall of Bethshan. He doesn't know that. He doesn't know, verse 9, how they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people, exalting And Dagon's victory over Yahweh, not even knowing the whole of it, not knowing any of that. Just the very thought of the Philistines rejoicing in the streets crushed David. Tell it not in Gath. Verse 21, you mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. So we have some powerful imagery here. 
First David curses uh, the, the mountains uh, upon which Saul and Jonathan were killed. Now, obviously that's not literal. It's just a way for him to express his grief. It's kind of like when Job curses the day on which he was born to express his grief. And then he uses the, the imagery of the shield. Uh, shields were often made out of leather back then. And so they would be anointed with oil uh, to keep the leather from cracking and to, to, to make it shine. Well, David's saying here that Saul's shield, probably lying somewhere in the middle of Mount Gilboa, how it would never be used again, how it would never be anointed with oil again, because its owner, who happens to be the Lord's anointed, right, you see the, the play on words there, well, he's now dead. Verse 22, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back. The sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Jonathan's bow, Saul's sword, uh, their weapons symbolizing their military might. Uh, they never returned empty-handed. They were, they were always on the winning side. We remember Jonathan's exploits from uh, chapter 14 when he and his armor bearer single-handedly went and defeated the Philistines. Uh, we remember Saul right, at the end of chapter 14 tells us all about his military exploits. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Verse 24, you, daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Makes reference there to the, the economic prosperity brought about during Saul's reign. And you can see the contrast between verses 20 and 24. In 20, we see that the daughters of the Philistines are rejoicing and exulting. But daughters of Israel, verse 24, you ought to weep because your king is dead. Then David shifts the focus. Previously, he's been talking about uh, Saul and Jonathan, both of them, and lamenting their deaths. Now he goes from talking about both of them to addressing only Jonathan. Look at verse 26. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Now some more uh, modern readers of the Bible have uh, suggested that David is referencing some kind of homosexual relationship with Jonathan here. Uh, but there's absolutely nothing in the text or anywhere in the books of First and Second Samuel to suggest that that was the case. Now, when he talks about the extraordinary love of Jonathan, he is talking about a, a sacrificial loyalty and a faithfulness that he never experienced even in any of his marriages. Now, that might have been his own fault. After all, he did go against God's original design for marriage by taking to himself many wives. And so really, he, he himself like forfeited uh, the loyalty and the faithfulness that one ought to see in marriage. Like that kind of loyalty and faithfulness, uh, to love as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right? That's what marriage is supposed to be about. But again, David's marital life or, or marital lives uh, was a complete mess. But that's not the point. The point is that Jonathan is that kind of friend. First Samuel describes their hearts as being knit together. Jonathan strengthens David's hand in God in times of difficulty. Jonathan literally gives David his robe and his weapons, symbolizing that he's giving up the right to the throne to his friend David. That kind of love. Philippians chapter 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Uh, that's a really rare thing. And David recognizes that. Look at how he addresses Jonathan as my brother, uh, Jonathan. The proverb is true. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That was Jonathan. But again, this is a sobering reminder of death, is it not? I mean, you think about the, the, the best friends in the Bible. Like if I said to you, hey, give me an example of, of a godly friendship from the Bible, I'd imagine that most of you would point me to David and Jonathan. 
But as strong as their bond was, like as much as they truly did sacrificially love each other, as much as they've been through, well, just like every other friendship, it came to an end. You think about it. It's very sobering. Every single friend that you have in this world, or that you will ever have in this world, one of two things is true. Either you're going to say goodbye to them, or they're going to say goodbye to you. Right? Either, either I'm going to go to your funeral, or you're going to come to my funeral. That temporariness, that should give us a great sense of urgency. For unbelieving friends, it gives us a sense of urgency to share the gospel with them. The clock is ticking towards eternity. And they need to be saved. So let me just say to the, the unbelievers who are with us here this morning, by the end of this sermon, you will be 40 or 50 minutes closer to your death than when we started. The clock is literally ticking. You're, you're staring at an eternity in hell because of the sins that you've committed against the holy God, and you need to be saved. And Jesus is that Savior. Jesus died for sinners like you and like me that we might be forgiven. Jesus gives sinners like you and like me his perfect righteousness that we might live forever with him. And so I tell you that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to repent and believe the gospel and be saved. And I say that with urgency because your life is short and my chance to speak the gospel to you is probably shorter. But brothers and sisters, it also gives us a sense of urgency in our relationships with believing friends. It gives us a sense of urgency as we pour into one another that we might present to each other mature in Christ, Colossians chapter 1. As we help each other to look more like Jesus. Again, knowing that our time with one another is short. It's coming to an end. But it also helps us to look to that which is eternal, does it not? Our inseparable union with Jesus Christ. We sang about it this morning. Jesus, friend of sinners. There's a friend that we'll never have to say goodbye to because he will never leave us nor forsake us. He will never lose us, but he will keep us to the end. Point number two, the lament. So that's 2 Samuel chapter 1. The lie and the lament, the prose and the poetry. But here's the question that kept coming back to my mind as I was thinking about this chapter. Like, what's the point? What's the point of the author of 2 Samuel including all of this? Like, as a reference point, you remember when Samuel died back in chapter 25? All we got was one verse. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. That's it. But Saul's death, we, we essentially get two chapters about Saul's death. Right? Chapter 31 is about how he died. And now here in 2 Samuel 1, we get a whole 27 verses just about the reaction to Saul's death. Even Moses, right? Legendary Moses. When he dies in Deuteronomy 34, there's one verse about the reaction to his death. And yet for Saul, we get 27. Why? Well, why include this story about the Amalekite? Why include David's poem? I'm not going to pretend to know the intentions of the biblical author or, or the ultimate author, the Holy Spirit. But I do think we get a very clear contrast in this chapter. And so perhaps this is the main point here. We have very different people responding to the same event in very different ways. You've got this Amalekite, decidedly not one of God's people. As a matter of fact, he's a person under God's curse. And he tries to take advantage of Israel's defeat. He tries to take advantage of Saul's death for his own gain. He's a man who's all about his own glory, and he sees this as a golden opportunity to advance his own glory. 
If I bring the crown to David and I tell him that I finished Saul off, then I will be handsomely rewarded. And on the other hand, you have a man after God's own heart, David. And he's portrayed so vividly in this chapter as being the exact opposite. He does not see this as an opportunity to advance his own glory. Like if we didn't know better from having studied 1 Samuel, like if you just jumped in and you just read 2 Samuel chapter 1, you would not know that David is the one in line to become the next king. Like we would have no idea that in the very next chapter, he's going to be anointed as the king of Judah. And in four chapters, he's going to be anointed as king over both Judah and Israel. We'd have no idea because he's so consumed here, not with his own glory, but with the glory of God. We see how David is consumed with the glory of God and how he starts the poem. Tell it not in Gath, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. He is concerned for God's glory. He is mortified by the fact that the Philistines are going to seize this opportunity to give glory to Dagon and bring shame upon Yahweh. And sure, these events are eventually going to give him a very clear path to the kingship. But in his mind, who cares if I get to become king if God's name is defamed? Tell it not in Gath. And we see how David is consumed with God's glory and how he talks about Saul. Don't make the mistake of thinking that David is just saying nice things at Saul's funeral. You know how it is, right? There's this, like a miserable person, just a, just a really wicked person. He dies and everybody shows up to the funeral to, to pay respects and say nice things about him. He's a really good guy. He's a, he's a family man, whatever it might be. That's why it's called a eulogy. A good word. Uh, Even the world has enough sense and decorum to not speak ill of the dead. But that's not what's going on here. David just, he's not just refraining from saying bad things about Saul. uh, This this man who's tried to wickedly murder him for many years. This is more than just Proverbs 17.5. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. David isn't just not rejoicing at Saul's death. He's weeping. He's genuinely mourning at Saul's death. He is sincerely and honestly speaking well of his enemy. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. And it's not just here in chapter 1. Throughout the book of 2 Samuel, David is going to continue to honor Saul's family, to honor Saul's legacy, to honor Saul's memory. He's not just putting on a show at the funeral. And you say, how is that possible? How is David able to say that about the man who threw spear after spear after spear at him? And the answer is because David's primary concern is the glory of God, not his own. And so he's able to see past the personal difficulties that Saul caused him and truly remember Saul primarily as the Lord's anointed, as God's king who led Israel in many glorious victories over Israel's enemies, as God's anointed king who brought prosperity to the people, as God's anointed king who in spite of his wickedness and in spite of his rejection was still an instrument that God used to bring himself glory. And so this chapter presents us with two very different people. One who seeks his own glory, the Amalekite. And one who truly seeks after the glory of God in David. And that's why their responses are so different. But maybe what's most interesting about this chapter is just how wrong the Amalekite was about David. Like the Amalekite thought that David was altogether like him. That David thought like him in terms of seeking personal fame and glory. That David reasoned like him, thinking of other people as merely obstacles to his own goals and successes. That David had a worldview like his, 
Of course you hate your enemies. Of course you wish evil upon them and you rejoice at their calamity. No, David was altogether different from the Amalekite. Because the Amalekite was a child of his father, the devil. But David was a child of God. They belonged to different kingdoms. And so they had entirely different worldviews. And this comes as an incredible shock to the Amalekite. So brothers and sisters, as we close, let me ask, do we have a similar focus on God's glory? And is our pursuit and our fixation on God's glory so passionate and so obvious and so determined that the unbelieving Amalekites in our lives, they just look at us and say, that doesn't make any sense. They're taken aback by how different we are from them. They just can't understand why we are not like them. Why we just don't seem to care about our own glory at all. But that's what the gospel does. The gospel isn't like a small adjustment to your life. The gospel isn't just something that makes you into a nicer version of your old self. The gospel is a wholesale change to your life. You are a new creation. Colossians chapter 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It is a transference of kingdoms. And different kingdoms must mean different lives. If there's no difference in how you think, believe, and live as compared to the Amalekites in your life, well, then it's obvious that there has not been a change in kingdoms either. That, I think, is the point of 2 Samuel chapter 1. Different kingdoms, different reactions, different lives. And that, I hope, is going to be the meditation of our hearts, even this Lord's Day. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray for those in this room who do not know you. Lord, we pray that this morning would be the day in which that transference of kingdoms would happen. That you would sovereignly regenerate them, allow them to be born again, that they might believe and repent of their sins. Lord, for those of us who have been born again, God, we pray that this message from this chapter would not be quickly forgotten, but that we would, throughout this day, throughout this week, and for the weeks to come, would examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Lord, that we would look for fruit of this transference of kingdoms in how we live and how we think and how we talk and how we carry ourselves. Lord, that you might be glorified in all things. Lord, we want to be people like David. We want to be people who are concerned first and foremost primarily with your glory, not our own. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.